0: i for Cause you, when you call our name, and where you lead us, we'll find you guys get up on your feet find somebody and tell them good morning (laughs) whose power cannot be shaken whose breath gives us life Whose death can set the captive free His name will stand forever, lifted high for all to see. Jesus I got our Lord, I king. brighter than a million stars his love is shining calling every broken heart come out of hiding healing for the hurting and freedom from the dark he is brighter than a million stars yeah yeah this grace this grace is so amazing and this love is so complete and this mercy sets the prisoner free yeah. oh i'm brighter than a million stars his love is shining calling every broken heart come out of hiding healing for the hurting And freedom from the dark He is brighter than a million stars And His love is shining And His love is shining Over you and me Reminding us that He has set us free Yeah His love over his love is shining calling every broken heart come out of hiding healing for the hurting and freedom from the dark he is brighter than a million stars oh and brighter than a million stars his love is shining calling every broken heart come out of hiding for the hurting and freedom from the dark he is brighter than a million stars yeah, yeah oh his love is brighter oh his love is brighter 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 than a million stars
1: Good morning, everybody. You really can clap. It's okay. I know it's like, "Mm, are we allowed to? Should I? It's okay to clap if you feel like it. If you don't feel like it, have the person next to you clap. There you go. Very good. Like a bunch of seals. It's so good to see you this morning. I don't know what you're going to do with your afternoon, that unless you're a Green Bay Packer fan, there's not a lot to watch on TV today. And I know there's at least two because they're wearing jerseys of their favorite Packer. So, uh, congratulations beforehand. People walking on around. You don't have to apologize. It just freaks me out. But I hope you're doing well. What a beautiful morning to be here and to worship together. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, If you are visiting with us, welcome to Carpenter's Way. Uh, We are right now in the middle of a study on the life of Jesus uh, from all four Gospels. What we've done is we are putting together, we're trying to come up with a chronological, uh, chronological order of the events through the Gospels. And we are almost at the place where Jesus is going to turn his face towards Jerusalem, and he is intensely meeting with the disciples, trying to prepare them for his leaving. And you remember, and I'll get into this a little more later, you remember that he's going to leave them by dying on the cross, Three days later, he'll rise again, and then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. So he's preparing them for the ministry that's going to take place after. So that's where we're going to be this morning, and we are excited to have you with us, and you'll jump right in with us. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus on, on sin. There's a lot of muddiness on sin today. It's not something we talk about very much. We refer to it, but we don't really get into it. So we're going to see what Jesus has to say about sin this morning. And uh, again, we're glad you're here. and want you to participate with us. And if you are visiting with us and you're here this morning in our building, uh, we would love... This is great, but also... Maybe even more important is the Bible studies that take place, gathering with smaller groups of people and looking at the scriptures and discussing and building relationships. And if you have been here a couple of weeks and you have yet to do that, we're afraid you're gonna you're not building relationships. We want you to build relationships with God's people. So as soon as service is over, my wife and I will be up here and I will take you to a Bible study class or if you're scared of pastors, as you exit. There's a table that says welcome to CW on it, and uh, we have some people that'll be there that would love to tell you about the different Bible studies and take you to one. We do not break our Bible studies down by age groups, and we have a couple that are before the service at 8, 15 in the morning, and then most of them take place after the service, and uh, we would love to introduce you to people and, and, and let you get to know them. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks for watching online if you are. And uh, we're looking forward to getting into the Word with you in a few moments, but we're awfully glad to have you here with us this morning. And our hope and our prayer is that you are encouraged in your relationship with the Lord. If you'd open your worship guide, we have some things uh, that I want to highlight today. Uh, today, at the, right after service uh, at 11 o'clock, Over here in this corner, there's going to be a Guatemala information meeting, so we are ramping up our summer mission. We have two or three every year uh, mission trips, uh, and this is the informational meeting about Guatemala. We also have a Brazil mission trip that will be going on this summer, but I believe that trip is full uh, already, so uh, I'm excited because I'm taking my wife to Brazil and my daughter and uh, neither of them have been on an international mission trip before, so we're really excited about that opportunity. But if you haven't been and you're interested, this is, it's, it's only about 10 or 15 minutes, and it's going to be right up here. You can join your Bible study after, but uh, this is just informational, costs and different things. Is there anything I'm missing? Okay. So you'll want to be at that. There is, uh, right under that, ladies' Bible studies are beginning again. And uh, man, Julie was telling me this morning, there's already 60 ladies signed up. So jump into a Bible study. It's not just time in the Word. It's time with each other, building relationships, and uh, we want you to do that. I want to remind the men that every Tuesday morning from 6.30 to 7.10, right in the entryway, we study the Word together. Uh, Daryl Douglas leads us and does a great job, and we would love to have you join us for that. Um, Other things uh, you can read in here, Wednesday night, this last Wednesday night, we started a new Wednesday night adult conversation. Um, We call it Koinonia, and it's a biblical-based conversation. Right now we're uh, watching and participating in a Ravi Zacharias eight-week series called Deliver Us From Evil. It's talking about how a Christian... Uh, how we interact with evil in our culture and in our world, and and so we want to encourage you to be involved in that. Also, you'll see that there's a yard sale coming out. It's a a benefit for Mother's Day Out. Uh, We are going to have two weeks of voter registration. We're not going to tell you how to vote. We're just going to tell you you need to, Uh, and so if you aren't registered to vote here uh, the next two Sundays, uh, Sharon Kennedy out there will have a table, and we would encourage you to participate in our Republic Democracy uh, and So uh, we, I think that does it. Um, there's other stuff in there, but, but you can read all that stuff. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time as we prepare to take our offering. Uh, if you're visiting with us, this is for those who attend here regularly. We just, we just ask that you don't take anything out as it goes by. Um, that was a joke. If you really need it that bad, um, ask the usher. <laughs> but we're glad you're here. Let's, let's commit our, the rest of our service to the Lord. Father, we're thankful that we can gather here each week and study your word. Thank you for this country that uh, we're not afraid this morning of of bad things happening in this room or the government closing us down or taking our property. We're just just thankful that we can gather here and thankful for how you provide for us for 25 years and financially and with folks. And it's our hope, Father, it's our prayer that we would be an encouragement to your family, that we would motivate one another to love and good deeds, as Hebrews says. So I pray for those who are watching on the internet today. I pray for those in this room that you would make us more like yourself and uh, that we will enjoy our time together. So teach us, speak to us, transform us from the inside out. And uh, as we leave this place, I pray that we would see the world as our mission field. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: As the offering plate passes, if you want to stand and worship with us, you're going to welcome. Your people worship of me Salvation comes in the name Ascend to heaven, my soul Breathe in the love of the Lord Let go of all of the shame The fear of this world, being on the glory of God, behold him seated above, and in the light of his face, begin to worship, begin to worship. the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ it is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay and through your faith God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Once a sinner, now I'm clean. Once condemned, now I'm made free. He turned my darkness into light, and now I see. Once in ashes, there's beauty. And once in pieces, I'm complete. My Redeemer now resides. He lives in me. Oh, He is alive and I am blessed death no more oh, He is alive in Jesus Christ always secure Where the Lamb of God once lived There's victory in an empty And now with resurrection power Oh, I will sing Yes, I will sing Oh, He is alive And I am bound to death no more Christ always secure death is defeated oh and death is defeated hope is eternal i <laughs> Oh, He is alive, and I am bound to death no more. Oh, He is alive in Jesus Christ. Always secure. my life
1: take a moment and pray together. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that the songs that we just sang would be real in our hearts and uh, that you would be our everything. And I pray that we would understand the ramifications of that. Lord, as we dismiss our kids to their programming today and their Bible study, Father God, reach them at a young age and protect them from the wiles of the devil. For us, Thank you for the life and the time you've given us on this planet. May we be faithful to our task, and may we passionately and undividedly focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, one of the things I, I don't, you know, we don't, we haven't talked about why we worship very often, and um, probably something that we'll be discussing in the near future a little bit more, especially as we get into Acts. but. You know, what we do together in song is uh, we sing to the Lord sometimes. We sing about the Lord sometimes. That's what hymns do. They talk about doctrine and different things. Our choruses, we sing prayers, uh, personal commitment. Um, we sing of the goodness of God. Some of our uh, songs do that. But the fact is it's the one part of our service where we're in unison. We all make declarations about God. And uh, as we continue worshiping together through the years think about the words of, of what's being sung. I, I know that every once in a while there is debates on the old songs, the old hymns and how wonderful they were and the old, new courses. but there, there's such a unique difference between some hymns and songs. Songs uh, and, and choruses ha- reflect um, the cry of our hearts as the children of God and they're, they're valuable, they're precious, they're, they're unison prayers that we put to music and... and uh, uh, so as we as we sing, think about what you're singing, um, because it explains the battle of the Christian life. For instance, you just sang, you are my everything. Well, everything pretty much encompasses a lot of stuff. Everything. I mean, everything is a lot. It's, it's like everything. <laughs> and uh, when we make that declaration, I'm not sure we think about the ramifications of that kind of commitment to God. And this morning's discussion is... Um, as I was walking in here, somebody said, "Man, it's a pretty impressive church. If you can advertise that you're going to be talking about sin, and this many people will show up." <laughs> well, the fact is, most of you don't have Facebook, so you didn't know that's what we we're going to talk about this morning. But, but, but the truth is, the truth is, um, that there's a lot of stuff that's said about Jesus, and we'll get into that in a moment. And that's what led us to this study because there's even stuff, and I, I, I want to, I want to mention one thing. And, and this is not a shot at this book, although it's going to sound like it. But uh, at Southwestern Seminary, one of the professors there, the head of the doctrinal department, is, is, is heading up his, his, his work in the seminary based upon a book that he wrote entitled Baptist Doctrine in the Bible. Now, that may be a phenomenal book. I haven't read it. But if we go to the Bible to find Baptist doctrine or God's view on single women or cowboys or Indians... Um, Uh, or, or my personal thing, whatever it is, social justice, we're not actually learning who Jesus is in the Scriptures. We're going to the Scriptures to find every verse represented for babysitters. And that's a big thing in the church today. Not babysitters necessarily, but there's a Bible for everything. A man's Bible, inferring that there are verses just to men, or a woman's Bible, or a Bible for teenage girls or teenage boys, and while that may sell the product, and I think that there's probably some, you know, an angle, and maybe there's devotions to it, the truth is we're undermining the purpose of the scriptures, and that is not to go into the scriptures to find out, or to confirm what I believe, or say something to my, my socioeconomic group, but to actually discover who is this Jesus. That takes discipline. Because I think intrinsically we're lazy. I think intrinsically we want to be we want to have the scriptures confirm what we already believe or our, or our inclinations and and so that we can continue living the way that we're living. I, I actually believe and, and this should set the stage for what we're going to talk about this morning. I think that one of the dangers of of modern Christianity with all of its production companies and all of our, uh, uh, the, the idea to make it relevant, the passion to make it relevant to your lives as if it doesn't on its own or the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to you. I think that we've moved into a time where we're trying to explain our culture and our own personal struggles away or the scriptures away in light of our personal struggles. And, uh, and that is really dangerous. There are two ways that people approach scripture. You either go into scripture to find out what it says, to grab it and to learn from it, or you go into scripture to confirm your angle. And I believe that most of Christendom goes in with their own angle. What does God have to say about homosexuality? Not a lot. He has a lot to say about sin, though. Uh, you know, just a case in point that we've talked about before when the United States decided that gay marriage would be legalized, the church responded by saying marriage is a godly marriage. God-ordained marriage is not between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It's between a man and a woman. That's not true. That's not true. Sacred marriage as defined by a holy matrimony that God, does, God honors isn't between a man and a woman. It's between a godly man and a godly woman. And if we uh, decide that we're going to take a stand, and we should, against sinful marriage. That includes way more than just man-to-man and woman-to-woman. It includes dudes and women who are living together. Sex outside of marriage. But what we've done, and we're setting the stage for what we want to talk about, is we have allowed our culture and our, our political correctness, even inside of the church, to dictate some sins as greater than others. Clearly, adultery is a problem in the church, but we're not so sure that gluttony is a problem in the church. Clearly, clearly, uh, I don't know, murder, that's clearly a sin. We're not so sure that lying's a sin, as long as nobody gets hurt. Clearly, uh, we, we don't take gossip as seriously as we should. Um, and, and it is in that vein that we and, I, and I, I know I know you might be going, "Wow, Mark's on a roll, you know." He's about to have a grandchild. He's probably more hormonal than he should be. <laughs> All of those things. But you think I'm tough on sin. Wait till you see what Jesus has to say about it. And you need to plug, plug in, buckle up, because the whole thing matters. And at the end, you're going to find out what the answer to our sin problem as Christians really is, as opposed to my Baptist friends or Assembly of God friends or Pentecostal friends, as opposed to what you've been taught. Because you're, I'm gonna get ahead of myself. <laughs> In our study, we're we are presently working hard and disciplined, taking our time, we're going slow to discover for ourselves who is the Jesus of the Bible and what he taught. Not who we wish he was, not who, not who we were told he was, but who he really, really is from the scriptures. And we're doing that by investigating eyewitness testimonies from people who firsthand saw Jesus walk on this earth, teach, do miracles, and those eyewitnesses are the, are the authors of the four Gospels. Now, I know some of you who are theologically minded are going to say, well, Mark wasn't eyewitness to all of it. He was eyewitness to some of it. Take a breath, Zach Wilkie. It'll be just fine. <laughs> just, just kidding. The, the truth is the truth is these were eyewitnesses; they lived at the time of christ, and so although we see them as a portion of the scriptures, what they really really are is eyewitness testimonies to who this Jesus was, and one of the reasons we can do that is because they often are very self deprecating they talk about how they missed the truth of, of what he taught, how often they were wrong about it so so as we study these works, as we study these gospels we um, We fight against the the pressure of an American gospel or a Baptist gospel or an Assemblies of God or a cultural gospel to try to get back to a a biblical doctrine. One, One thing that we have learned as we've studied together over this past year is that Jesus didn't come to endorse anyone or anything or any group, including the Jews. He actually came with his own message of mercy and grace offered to anyone, Jew or Gentile, religious or secular, who realizes their desperate need for it, sinner or saint. In fact, if we were to, um, this is my opinion here right here, but if you were to ask me, Pastor Mark, what is the basis, key Jesus doctrinal truth that everything branches off from? It's not John 3.16. That's the application of it. But the core biblical doctrine, what is Jesus' core value? It's John John 14.6. This is it. I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That is is Jesus' doctrinal foundation. Everything else, from from the Father loving us and sending his son to dying for us, everything else, everything Jesus does, from the miracles to, to ministering to people to his teaching, it all grows out of this one concept, You can't save yourself. Judaism can't save you. Gentile philosophy, Roman philosophy, Greek philosophy can't save you. You can't be Jewish enough or good enough or a law abider enough. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way and everything branches from that. And everybody got offended at that because nobody wants to believe that he's that isolationist. Even today, people say, oh, Jesus was meek and mild and gentle. And he was open-minded. No, he wasn't. That's not open-minded. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Me, alone, me, 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 me. Jesus, I am the way. If you claim, whether you're in this room or not, I'm watching on the internet, if you claim that Jesus has ultimate authority on how to live and truth, and most people do today, every group from homosexuals to uh, heterosexuals, from liberals to conservative politically, every group, every strain, some level goes to Jesus to say, look, Jesus taught this, and it validates their own point of view. If you're going to do that, then you at least have to have enough integrity to go back and find out who this Jesus was and what he taught all the time. If you want to be right, if you want to live in ignorance as a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat or a socialist, if you want to live in ignorance as a Baptist or an Assembly of God member or a spiritual person that doesn't align yourself with the church, then go on and keep doing what you're doing. But if you want to know the Jesus of the Bible, you're going to have to do your homework. And that means, not, that means reading it studying it over and over. Who are you, Jesus? Introduce yourself to me. And that's what we're trying to do. If you're visiting Carpenter's Way, you're going, well, that's kind of cheap. You're a Baptist pastor. Ask the person you came with. They will tell you, I am a lousy Baptist. I offend Baptists as much as I offend, I don't know, anybody. The truth is we got much work to do to go back and get away from what we've taught and back into the scriptures. There's no greater and I know this, is an exact, this This may be too big, but there's no greater convoluted doctrinal conversation today than on what is sin. We don't really get into what the Bible says about sin. We, just, it, we don't teach on sin much because we don't talk about repentance because it offends visitors. But the truth is we try to stay away from the issue of sin um, for whatever reason. And, and what's ironic about it is the church has been wrong on sin so many times in the past. For instance, there was a time in history after the, right around the time of Christ when the church taught that you had to keep the Jewish law. If you weren't circumcised, you were sinning against God. In our lifetimes, I grew up in a church that taught going to movies was a sin. Uh, I was taught growing up that playing with playing cards and dancing was a sin. Were you guys taught that? Was, was square dancing allowed? Why was square dancing a lot? You can tell me later. You can email that to me. My email is jeff at cwbc.org. But I, it, it just, the, the, certain, kind, certain kinds of dancing were sin. Um, I understand in certain parts of the South, smoking was a sin. And the difference between areas where smoking was a sin and not is whether or not you grew tobacco as members of your flock. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I grew up at a time, I remember being taught, and most of you remember being taught because you're my age, uh, interracial dating and marriage was a sin. Uh, I remember being taught from the Old Testament that tattoos were a sin. Um, I know some of you just went, <gasps> they are. I remember being taught that all drinking, putting alcohol in your mouth, was a sin, despite the fact that all of us have used NyQuil, which is like 80 proof or something like that. Uh, but, but there are things, and, and, and look, I can defend each of these, and if you want to do that, we can do that at a different time, but none of those things are really sin. In fact, some of those grow out of our prejudices. That's sin. While it may be interesting to debate what we might consider sin or not sin, the Bible is pretty clear in its definition of sin. In James chapter 4, verse 17, this is all setting up to what Jesus had to say about it. And, and if your perception of Jesus is meek and mild, you are about to have your mind blown. In James four seventeen, this is what James wrote about sin. Remember, it's a sin to know what you ought to do and not to do it. So that's a definition of sin. If you know what to do and you don't do it, it's a sin. Now this is interesting because most of us, again, in our, in our cultural Christianity, we go to sleep during these conversations because we, we, that sounds familiar to me. Okay, yeah, yeah. But I want you to pay attention to what it says. Actually, in most churches you go to, you're going to be told sin is, uh, sin is when you do something you shouldn't. Right? Like smoking, dancing, drinking, killing people, lying. That's not what this says. It actually says that sin is to know what you should do and not do it. Like helping little old ladies across the street or not yelling at your waitress or whatever. I mean, you, I, I just said not doing something. But actually, this, this, uh, James is actually defining sin as, as not doing the right thing. So for those of you who have lived your whole life going to church and being told by pastors what you shouldn't do, I've got bad news. While you're still trying not to do those bad things, you haven't even gotten to doing the good things yet. Are you following my thinking yet or have I lost you? But it gets worse, and I mean worse. Because actually that's not a definition of sin, that's James telling you what is sin. But there is a biblical definition of sin out of Romans 14, verse 23, the end of it. That stinks. Okay, I'm gonna let that sink in or, or you go ahead and fall asleep. That, that stinks. Because that's bad, that's a terrible, that's, that's bad news. Because if sin isn't just lying or stealing or cheating or chewing tobacco, <laughs> I added that for fun, um, if sin isn't just doing the wrong thing, and then we just found out that James says sin is not doing the right thing, helping little old ladies across the street, you know, thanking a cop for his service, being nice to people that you don't like, all those things. Now we find out that actually the definition of sin is doing anything not from faith. So I can be up here this morning and I can be preaching and I can be sinning. And you think about that. <laughs> I, I'm not. But I could be. And not the sin you think, I, I, you know, not like lusting or lying or cheating or trying to deceive you, but actually I can be sinning because I'm doing it in my own power, based upon my own training, based upon my years of experience, when I get up here and I'm feeling it. And there's been times, I know it's shocking, but I've done that when I'm extra funny. My problem, you know, the problem that we have at Carpenters with my sense of humor is you don't have one and I'm hilarious. <laughs> That's the problem. But the truth is that sometimes you feel so in your zone. I, I, I tell Julia that sometimes I'm going to overheat. If I really like a message a lot, I'll say to her, this, is this message is so good, I'm afraid I'm going to overheat. That's code for too much Mark, not enough God, because I really like the topic. Uh, if, if, you're, if, if Chad leads worship, and we love his voice, and I love his voice, he's like my favorite worship leader, but if he's up here doing that, and he's going, you know what, he's fighting with Teresa, which they never do, I happen to know, and, and they're fighting, and he gets up here, and he goes, just, just, I'm just going to do it, and he does it in his flesh, that's sin. If you're living your Christian life, not in faith. If you're fighting sin, lust, in your own power, according to this definition, that's sin. (laughs) What? Well, then how can I not sin? Yeah, that's the problem. The problem is we, we want so badly, and you can just decide if this is true. We want so badly to be able to constrain our flesh in our own power that we have relegated sin, even even the levels of lying. For instance, most of you in this room would admit that telling somebody that's got a bad haircut that their haircut is good is a lie, but it's a different level of lie. You're sparing their feelings. So now lying is only a sin if it hurts people. You understand the slippery slope you're on, right? So are you saying, Pastor Mark, that we should tell people when they have ugly haircuts? No, I don't tell people when they have ugly babies. I've told you that before. And there are some ugly babies. I'm the only one to admit it here. But there are some ugly babies. A baby that's had a traumatic experience in previous hours before birth, and, and they had to use tools, and their head looks... But that is... A... is don't go into the hospital room and go, you have one ugly baby. That is not smart if they ask me isn't my baby adorable i go that, that is surely a baby <laughs> that is a baby yes it's a baby oh my phone is ringing i've got to go and then i make it ring but that's you know, i'm not saying i'm not saying that we shouldn't go we should go around telling each other off in the name of truthfulness what i'm saying is you understand the complicated situation we're in we really believe for the most part, that we can constrain our flesh so much, and even though we know in our head we can't, we believe that if we constrain our flesh so much in our own power, that we can decide what should be acceptable to God and what's not, and what offends Him and what doesn't, and we make decisions on our own. And that's not life in faith. You see, the truth is what God wants from us, and it started at the moment of salvation, if you confess Jesus's Lord, ruler of everything, controller of all. That's when you bow the knee and you say, "Your Lord, I'm not. But somewhere a week later, a Baptist tells you that what you need to do now that you're saved is, and he goes through a list of things. And the, not just Baptists, but Assemblies of God. Also, we have, we have a, a litmus test. And while disciplines of the Christian life are very, very important, if you rest your spiritual health based upon those things, you miss the fact that if your discipline keeps you spiritually healthy, then you don't need God. And that's sin. Well, you're being kind of tough. You think I'm tough. Look at what Jesus said. So in our journey with the 12 and Jesus, we find he's now preparing them for his departure. We're months away, not years, and he is in t- intense teaching mode. In fact, last week's text, which is right before this, Jesus says he wants to leave the crowds and be alone with the disciples because he wants to teach them. And they seem to be doing daily cram sessions to prepare them to continue his ministry after he leaves. And he is going to leave them, not spiritually, but physically. He's going to leave them. He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead. They're going to be excited about that. Then he's going to tell them he's going to leave them for good until he returns. And he's preparing them for that. And in that, this conversation comes up in Matthew 18, verse 6. If you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So much for a meek and mild Jesus. You, you understand what he's saying, right? It would be better for you to kill yourself than take one of my children and mislead them. Lead them away from me. Verse 7, what sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? Jesus wasn't really talking about in this text as is often thought about children and his love for kids, although he loved them, and there's other places he talks about that. Jesus is talking about what happens to the person who tempts one of his followers away from him, takes their faith in him and places it in themselves or somewhere else. He actually says in this that temptations are inevitable. We're all going to be tempted. I get that. But what sorrow awaits the individual who does the tempting? The point is, I will deal personally with anyone who tempts one of my kids away from their focus on me. Wow. So so you should be thinking about ministries today. You should be thinking about how easy it is for the flock to fall in love with the shepherd, small s, instead of saying focus on the great shepherd, capital G, capital S. You see, the great shepherd is the pastor. I am an under-pastor of the flock. I'm an under-shepherd. I speak to you things that God teaches me from the Word, but I do not speak on behalf of God. You, as his child, should be speaking to him directly. That's why we pray. Pray isn't complicated. I know there's billions of books on them, but prayer is not complicated. It's, it's talking to your heavenly Father. That's all it is. It's having a relationship, and there's no relationship without communication. Men, you've learned that from your wives, right? 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 You've learned that. Or maybe the wife isn't communicative. You've learned that. There's not much of a relationship. You can sleep together. You can, you can wake together. You can have coffee together. But if you're not talking about things beyond the surface, there's no intimacy. This has always been about intimacy. And the problem is from back in Moses' day when God wanted to put the tent of prayer in the middle of the Jewish camp of the 12 tribes when he wanted to do that. And the 12 tribes said, no, take the prayer tent and put it outside of the camp and we want to send Moses to go into the tent. And when Moses comes out, we'll be waiting for him and he can tell us what God said. God had invited them to meet with him personally, but they rejected God in that. People always want to deal with another human instead of God. That's why the Jewish people wanted a human king, because they didn't want to deal with God as their king, because you can't argue with God. You can argue with a pastor. You can argue with a rabbi. You can argue with whoever that human is, One of the reasons I think we have superhero Christians today is because you don't see them living. It's wonderful to read a book by a great pastor that you love and respect their doctrinal thing. But could you imagine if you saw them every week, you would take them for granted because they're not quite as amazing in person. You're supposed to watch your shepherd's life. You're supposed to see me argue with Julie and see if I'm willing to confess. You're supposed to see if this is real in my life. You're supposed to watch me wrestle with things. My kid's growing up. My son's sick. My daughter is sick. Having a grandbaby. You're supposed to watch me struggle. Not that I do everything perfect, but you find out how serious I am about this stuff, right? I think one of the reasons we like superheroes and we like to watch Jesus on TV being preached is because... We don't have to worry about what happens five minutes after. That's exactly why God has the church. We're supposed to hold each other accountable. Jesus says in this text, as he starts a conversation about sin, is the judgment on the individual who causes one of his children to be tempted is so severe, it really would be better if they had tied a stone around their own neck and drowned themselves in the sea. That's, that's pretty rowdy. And he's not done. You want to know how intense Jesus felt about sin? Let's let Mark take the rest of the conversation for us. Mark chapter 9. If your hand causes you to sin, what's it say? Cut it off. It is better, and we're not talking about anesthesia here. It is better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter internal life with only one foot and be thrown into hell than with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, rip that sucker out. I I changed that. That's Mark's version. You will not want my Bible, but that's the kind of stuff I'll translate. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Any question as to Jesus' genuine feelings about sin? I mean, we we have again in our culture, we have old time preachers who get up here and they talk about sin and God, and they beat the pulpit. Mine's metal, so I don't break it. And then we have guys who are kind of hip, skinny jean guys, and we don't talk about sin because we don't want people to feel bad. We may mention repentance periodically, but the thing is, God will improve your life. But somewhere in the middle is truth, and you want to know the truth. This is how Jesus felt about sin. Now let me be clear. Jesus is not saying that that Christians, the children of God, should go around maimed. That's not it. And I look around here and I see very few people with one hand or one eye. Of course, none of you struggle with sin, right? Okay, we've got very few honest people in this room. But the truth is, he's not saying that. Because the, the fact is, if you gouge both of your eyes out, it doesn't stop the lusting. It just doesn't let you stare at who you're lusting about, right? Just because you cut your hand off doesn't mean you can't beat them with the nub that's left right? I mean, the truth is you can still sin without those things. But Jesus is is speaking and he's explaining how passionately sin is offensive. It would be better for you to maim yourself to do whatever it takes to not sin than to be cast into hell. Because, well, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. No grading on the curve, oh, I don't like you more than him or her, or you've been hurt in your life, so I'm not going to hold it against you. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God, right? Because one of the things that that, that everybody has to understand is the reason you need a Savior is not to have a better family or raise better kids, but the reason you need a Savior is because you are under condemnation because your nature is sinful. Everybody has sinned. You have lied, and that makes you a... Liar. And if you haven't lied, you're lying. You have lusted, which according to Jesus makes you an adulterer. Now, well, lighten up. I mean, I was walking through a, a liquor store and I saw a magazine at 14 and I just looked at it. I mean, that's all I've ever done. Still lust, still adulterer. If you've hated somebody, according to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you are a murderer. And see, the problem is, if you're here, you go, man, I've never heard this guy preach before. He is clearly more attractive than most Baptist pastors, but he is just as angry. (laughs) So I just just want you to take a breath. The (laughs) The reality is, I'm in as big a trouble as you are because I'm just as big a sinner. In fact, I've probably indulged in grace more than you could ever hope to imagine. The fact is, that what Jesus is doing is raising the ante by saying, we've all sinned, Everybody sinned except me, you're in trouble, and I came to solve that trouble. And you can't solve this trouble on your own. In fact, there are, okay, and this is, this is right up there with 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, which you've heard me frustrated if my people are called by my name, because that's for the Jewish nation. I see, and, and, and I know that this affects some of you in this room, so take a deep breath, this is gonna be a tad bit offensive, but if I see one more cheerleading outfit with, um, I can do all things through Christ, I swear I'm going to blow a spiritual gasket. The whole conversation of with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible has nothing to do with your Olympic hopes. With man, what's impossible? Salvation. That's what it's talking about. It's in the context of the rich young ruler who had kept the law. And even the disciples said, if that guy can't be saved on his own, Jesus said, sell all you have and give to the poor. If that guy can't be saved, then who can? The disciples are asking Jesus that question. And Jesus says, you know what? How tragic. With man, it's impossible. But with me, all things are possible. You see, there's a point as you start listening to Jesus' teaching and his life about sin and life and redemption, and you understand that his doctrinal core is, I am the way to the Father, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody comes to him but through me. When you realize that, and you start listening to sin in a culture that wants to grade on a curve, and that's what we want to do, we, in fact, I would argue that most of us, and this includes me a lot of the time, unfortunately, I'm not yelling at you, I'm yelling at us, most of the time, I want to I label sin as sin so that I can go right up to the line of doing that thing. And, and we've laughed about this before, but for those of you who haven't been with us, this is one of the funniest stories, but it is a true story. I grew up in Southern California. We would do beach evangelism. And we would witness to kids on the beach during the summers and spring break, especially tourists who would come there. They're all wearing bikinis. And so the question came up, how do we do ministry on the beach without lusting? And our youth pastor said, just just don't look a second time. As long as you don't blink, it's not lust. And so my best friend and I would walk up the beach and when an unusually attractive young lady would walk by and we would be glorifying the Lord for her great creation that was before us, he would say to me, don't blink, don't blink, don't blink. I knew exactly what he meant. As long as you stare once, it's not sin. What you do is you begin to move backwards so that you can do what you really want to do without calling it sin. You realize that, right? Lust isn't a period of time or a blinking of an eye. It's a thing. And by the time you realize you've done it, you've already done it, you're already an adulterer, and you already deserve hell. That's the problem with sin. By the time you recognize you've sinned, but after salvation, since we want to live as sinless as possible, we begin to work our way through the sins. And now in the church, you would have to argue that the church has relegated some things as big sins and little sins, and we all understand that the prayer chain often turns into gossip sessions, but that's just gossip with a small g. It's not really, we're only doing it in love. And in the South, you've figured it out, and I agree you have, because if you end it with blessing, her heart. It's not really gossip at all. It's a love statement. She's gained 50 pounds since she went through menopause. Bless her heart. It's incredible how wonderful that is. The, the truth is we as, a, we as Christians too often try to redefine sin and label them so that we ourselves are not in that sin circle. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're so upset about homosexuality because most of us don't struggle with that. I think that's why we, we are okay with Christian Cake bakers, not making cakes for homosexuals, but I'd like to know when was the last time they asked a heterosexual couple if they're living in sin before they make that cake. Because one's inconsistent. If we're going to take a stand and only make cakes for people who are doing it God's way, then we can only do cakes for people who love God, who aren't having sex before marriage, and who have, in fact, decided to live apart until that day. That's fine. I, I think that's a good thing. Be a Christian, bake cake. But don't give the world an excuse to attack. Because our message to the world is, yeah, you're a sinner. You need salvation. You think you're better than me? No, 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 no. You misunderstand. I'm still battling my flesh every day. But that's not the message of the church. If you have a gay neighbor, your message to them isn't you're bad, it's we're bad. Thank God for grace. Let me tell you where you can find hope. It's not in your same sex spouse, it's in Jesus. That's the message of the church. But somewhere along the line, we forget that the wages of sin is death. And if you don't think the wages of sin is death for Christians, the percentage of divorce among believers is almost the same as the world. Some have said it's higher in the church. The wages of sin is death to marriage. It destroys our children. A little porn at 2 o'clock in the morning still affects your kids, even if they don't know it. The truth is the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to know the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of the Scripture's feelings on sin? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. And you want to know what God has done about it? He sent His Son to take your sin's penalty on His body on the cross. Every one of us needs salvation, even us saved folks. You have been saved. You are still being saved, and one day you will be saved. It's not over. You may be secure because the Holy Spirit has sealed you, but the truth is today, this afternoon, you will be tempted to destroy your family. You need to be saved this afternoon. You need to be saved this morning. You will need to be saved tomorrow. You mean I'm going to hell? No, but you've got to remember that the wages of sin is still death, even if it's not hell for us. To be clear, To those of you who are not children of God, you do not need to accept God's gift of taking care of your sin through Jesus. You have been given an option to pay for it yourself. That's eternal separation from God. You can do that. He gave you that option. He will not force you to your knees, not in this side of eternity. You get to choose, but why in the world would you ever want to go to hell? That makes no sense to me. You are the dumbest person alive, I know some of you went, can you call an unsaved person dumb? Why would you ever want to go into eternity with God, not as your friend? That's dumb. That is the definition of dumb. Whether you love Trump or hate him, if he could give you a billion dollars, you would be his friend. Some of you are like, I am too principled. Okay, good for you. I'm not. The truth is God, the creator of the universe, who gets to decide what's sin and what's not, the one who gets to decide who gets heaven and who doesn't, has said, I've made a way for you to join me in eternity. You don't have to pay for your own sin. Well, I want to pay for my own sin. Go for it. That's your choice. But why in the world would you do that? It makes no sense. So what do I do, preacher? Call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? That sounds Christian. Just tell him you're a sinner and he's the only one that can save you and you accept his Christmas gift of eternal life. That's all you gotta do. That's all, yeah. But the Holy Spirit will come in and he will change everything. That's the beginning of the conversation about sin, but he's not done. Now the 12 can feel, now that they can feel just how serious Jesus takes sin, he gets personal with them. And this is where it gets very important for us believers. Verse 49. 49. For everyone will be tested with fire. In other words, temptation to sin will burn hot. So run from it because, verse 50, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. In other words, don't let sin ruin your ministry. We're here to serve. He left us. He is going to leave these 12 behind, 11 of the 12, and then they're going to pick two more, but he's going to leave the 12 behind or 11 of them to do the ministry after he leaves. He's going to die. He's going to rise. He's going to float up into heaven, and he's going to leave them there to do ministry, and he is warning them, not only should you not tempt others to sin, keep them focused on me, not only should you indulge in your flesh, Because if you do, you'll lose your saltiness, which means you can't be a minister anymore. You're done. You will not be effective for the king. And this isn't just here. First Peter chapter two, Peter wrote about this. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners in this life, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. A few verses later in chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, he tells us why. You should worship Christ as Lord of your life, ruler, leader, director, guide. And if someone asks about your hope, having made him Lord, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Jesus is leaving these 11 to do his ministry. He's warning them that sin can destroy a ministry, but they need to continue to be salty. They need to keep obsessed over God, focused on Him. They need to protect themselves from losing their effectiveness. And why? Because Peter tells us that we should be living our lives of hope out, focused on the Lord, with Him as Lord, so that when the world sees that, they ask about it Why are you so weird? Why do you have hope? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. You've got the Democrats destroying the Republicans. and the, Isn't it crazy? It's so depressing. I'm sure glad. The, how is it you're making it? Well, because my king is Jesus. Aren't you afraid of America falling apart? Yes. Well, don't you lose sleep at night? Sometimes, but only when I'm not trusting God. Oh, that's a sin. You see the problem? The problem is we want to take things into our own hands all the time. I get it. The problem is we keep taking things back. That's a sin. Because faith in God says, I trust you with this. Well, then how can we stop sinning? Glad you asked. Jesus isn't done. He just told them to run from sin and its temptation. Matthew 18, verse 12 to 17. And you just thought, or I told you to think, well, how can we overcome sin? Well, we're going to battle with it. But look at what he says now, Matthew 18, verse 12. If a man has a 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go to search for that one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. And and, you know, we love this passage. We've heard it preached. And immediately we go, oh, that's what pastors do. They change, they, they leave the 99 to chase the one. That's what we think. But this is within the context of struggling with sin. And because Jesus doesn't want us to leave one behind, this is written, so, verse 15, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you may say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Whoa, pastor, I didn't know that was all within the context of sin. Yeah, you know what Jesus is saying? That this is a battle, a battle of our flesh. And you need to be careful not to tempt my followers to follow you instead of me. You need to keep them focused on me. And you know what? You need to run from sin. You need to fight sin. It would be better for you to cut your arm off than sin. That's how serious sin is. But the truth is, you've got to be careful because we're all going to be tempted. You are all going to be tempted to sin. And if you give into it, you're going to lose your saltness. But I've got to tell you something. There's going to, if 99 are walking with me and one goes away, you need to chase that person. And then he tells us what that looks like. We're God's kids. We need to take care of each other, especially spiritually. Now, if you're thinking, and if you've been a part of a church that's legalistic, I know what you're thinking right now. That sounds judgmental. We shouldn't judge each other. That is the mantra of the modern church. There's only one problem with that. Louise, would you put the problem up there? Please read it. It isn't my responsibility to to judge outsiders. In other words, it is not my job to make sure that Hollywood knows what's a sin and what's not a sin. It's not my job. It's not my job to make sure that people who don't claim to be the children of God live like it. That's not my job. They're outsiders. They're not part of the family. But it certainly is your, Paul is saying, your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Well, I didn't think we were supposed to judge each other. That's because you haven't read the book. We're supposed to take care of each other. Judge is a bad word here today. But the truth is taking care of each other requires judgment. That means that if if I get up here and I preach my heart out and you love it and the church is growing and Kip sees me beating my wife on Tuesday, he better come confront that. There's an inconsistency. Well, he shouldn't speak against God's anointed. That would be my wife. He should confront me, not my wife. Kidding. Joke. The, The truth is we do judge each other or we're not taking care of each other. This has been turned into a, uh, a spectator sport where you sit and listen to somebody preach or a teacher teach or a musician sing. But actually, that was never what this is about. Zach and I were talking this week about a message he heard in his own church a couple weeks ago. And I'm, I'm going to think about this in coming weeks. But his pastor started a message, all the things that the church doesn't need to do that we do and still be a church. And I, I don't, he, he told me some of the list. He played it a little bit. But some are have a corporate, corporate singing. We could be a church without corporate singing. Do you know we could be a church without corporate preaching? You could be a, a, a church without women's Bible studies. We could be a church without our men's time out. All the stuff that we think make up the activities of the church aren't really the church. The church is people who minister to each other, who do study the scriptures together, but it doesn't have to be in this setting. It can be in your living room. It can be, it can be out in a field. I've told you before, if this building burns down, I'll still see you next Sunday and we'll worship in the, in the, in the ash. What we think it is in this culture is not necessarily how God defines church. Church is what we do for each other and part of that is knowing how insidious sin is, how desire, you know, how our flesh rages at times, how we get frustrated and hurt and tired and we lose faith in God and you love your brother or sister enough to say, I got your back. It's not running across this room and going, you're an adulterer. It's actually having coffee with the adulterer. When we push Bible study at Carpenter's Way, like I did earlier, it's not because we need you more invested. It's because that's where this happens. You're not supposed to hear a rumor about the pastor and never talking with them and then all of a sudden sending them an anonymous note, thank you for writing those. You're supposed to know me. And if you've got something to say, sit across from me. Oh, um, but w- what if they get mad at me? The good news is you're not alone. That's exactly where Peter was in the very next section. This is context. Context is great. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me seven times? Peter's kind of trying to figure this out. This doesn't say two minutes later, but he's been thinking about it and he comes to Jesus and he's thinking about, okay, probably in that culture, rebuking was a little bit easier than it is in our culture or judging each other. That was more common for a rabbi to do that. But he's wondering, you know, some of the sins are bad-mouthing me. Some of the sins are trash-talking the church. I mean, surely there's a limit to the amount of sin against us We we should forgive. Verse 22, no, not seven times. To which Peter looked at James and high-fived him because he didn't let him finish. 70. (laughs) What? 70 times 7. What is that, 490? Thank you. I could be a math teacher. 490 sins. I think there's an app for that. Every time the person you don't like in the church sins against you, click, 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 click. I'm at 278. You should at least warn them that 490 is coming. (laughs) You understand he's speaking hyperbolically. He's just just blowing it out of the water. I mean, I I imagine that Peter actually thought Jesus was going to give him a practical answer because like you and I, he wants a practical answer. Jesus, how many times? Should I forgive him? Seven, that's the perfect number. Peter probably thought he was being spiritually superior. Seven, the perfect number. Surely seven is the right amount of forgiveness. You know, the perfect number, Peter, is 70 times seven. How am I going to keep track of that? Hire somebody. What Jesus is saying is one more time. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven will be compared to a king. Once again, Jesus goes off waxing eloquently. <laughs> compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who have borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so he, the master ordered that, uh, that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master, and he begged him, Please, please be patient with me. I'll pay it all. Then the master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat, and he demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged him for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I'll pay for it, he pleaded, but the creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven. He said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. Jesus finishes. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Let's close in prayer. It's never enough. And Peter walked away with his head down thinking, I said it again. How could I ever do that? Which is exactly what Jesus wants us to think. Maybe the reason why the standards are so high is because if they're any lower, we'll meet them. Maybe there's a secret in all this, and it's dependence on God. If the de- definition of God is true of sin, is actually anything not done in faith, then maybe it's important that we, even today as the children of God who look down on the evil world, maybe it's really important for us that we don't ever arrive. Because maybe if we arrive, we'll stop praying and depending and leaning on God. Maybe, maybe Jesus really takes sin that seriously, but grace even more seriously. But maybe His concern for us as His children isn't so much our sin, but that we remember how sinful we really are. Maybe this is why Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is Jesus on sin. Run from it. Be saved from it. Don't get into it. Don't let it ruin your ministry or your task. Take care of each other, even as it relates to sin. Chase each other. Forgive each other, even if they get mad at you for judging. And this is really practical. How am I supposed to go to my brother or sister who's struggling? Privately, personally, and in quiet. What if they don't listen? You go back with somebody else. Love them enough to take a second time shot at it. And if they don't listen, and they continue to live in a sinful way, while claiming to be in a righteous way, you involve the elders. And just so you know, there's not one of the seven that's looking forward to this. But this is how God wants us to deal with each other's sin. Not because we're mad at each other, but because we love each other. And we take this seriously. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. And if we want the world to believe that, it's going to have to start with us. As men and women who believe that the wages of sin is death, even for the child of God who's still indulging in the flesh. Even if it's your child, or your spouse, or your pastor. Because the truth is, as I said two weeks ago, you are the second line of defense in this life against me self-destructing. The first line is the Holy Spirit, and I blow him off too much, but I can see you. If you see me going down the aisle of flesh, it's your job to make sure your pastor doesn't go. But I was told as a kid that you can't stand against God's anointed. Well, that's an Old Testament verse about David. It's out of context, but I'll say this. If we're going to take that, every person in this room is anointed. And we're not taking a stand against them. We're taking a stand for them. That's what the church does. And that's Jesus' view on sin. Let's close in prayer. Father, help us to take sin seriously, even if it's been forgiven. May we not search for loopholes where we can invest in our flesh. May we not get as close to the dark side as we can. May we live so close to you that when we we sin, when we choose to do something in our flesh, we immediately come back to you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for the family of God that, that lifts each other up. And I pray for Carpenter's Way, that we would become the kind of church that deals with sin in a biblical fashion because we love God more than we love our reputation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to continue with this conversation. You'll start in 10 minutes. If you're visiting, I'd love to meet you.